Father God, I thank you for Simon. I thank you for his ministry and his gifts. And I thank you for all the work and effort he's put into preparing the word today for us. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will guide his speech, his thinking, his mind. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Amen. Amen. do you want in life? The answer to this question depends on the setting. In his book, The Myth of the Strong Leader, Oxford professor Archie Brown distinguishes two kinds of leadership, transformational and redefining. Transformational leadership is possible when a whole system needs to be replaced. In our era, Mikhail Gorbachev and Nelson Mandela are good examples of this. Men who led nations through radical changes to communism and apartheid, even if Gorbachev didn't anticipate where it would take the Soviet Union ultimately. By contrast, Redefining leadership happens where leaders are able to change the terms of the debate and push out the boundaries of what's politically possible. Clement Attlee was responsible for this when his government ushered in the post-war welfare state. Margaret Thatcher was, too, in the way this post-war settlement has changed. In other words, you need to be born in the right place at the right time to make big changes. Many politicians tend to inflate what's being achieved in government because appearance is so important. But history usually puts all achievements in perspective. So, where does Nehemiah stand on Archie Brown's scale? Not as a transformational leader, I think. The system wasn't taken apart, but put back together again. This suggests that Nehemiah was a redefining or a reforming leader. After years of exile, where Israel's identity had been dismantled piece by piece, he painstakingly put it back together again. And this took great ingenuity, energy, and perseverance. There were many setbacks you'll have heard about over recent weeks. And Nehemiah had to inoculate himself against discouragement. Any indication that he was becoming demoralized would have infected his people and inspired his opponents. And he was a force of nature. Only a few people fall into this category who have the willpower to muster others to sacrificial action. It's rare for such people to have attention to detail or the administrative skill needed to make things work. But Nehemiah had both. 
This probably meant he was a nightmare to work with because there could be no slacking at any point in the chain of command. It also meant that his vision of what needed to be accomplished ran throughout and admitted no dissension, which is usually a mixed blessing in life. The returnees to the land of Israel had a strong underlying view of what had gone wrong and what they needed to put right. The nation had been exiled because it had failed to obey the law and devoted itself to idols instead. The book of Deuteronomy sets out a simple binary position. Do what the law commands and you will be blessed. Ignore the law and you will be cursed. The returning Israelites saw their predicament in these terms, which meant they had to put right what had gone wrong, not just rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, the book of Nehemiah is controversial for the way it interprets the law in some people's eyes. There is a reforming zeal which concedes no ground to human sentiment or filial attachment. On reading that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God, the people promptly separated from those of foreign descent. Foreigners had always been formally welcome into the covenant of Israel if they were willing to show their allegiance to God, to Yahweh. Yet Nehemiah and those around him believed many of the non-Jewish Canaanite women who lived among them had enticed the Israelites into the worship of lesser gods. And the Moabites and the Ammonites in particular had denied them hospitality and cursed them long ago. I could not stress more highly the danger of manipulating texts like this, as it and others have been in history, as a pretext for racial exclusivity within national borders. As signs of this thinking bubble poisonously to the surface in parts of Europe, we need to develop and defend a theology which understands the specificity of a text like this, and also how it's qualified by other parts of the Bible. The book of Ruth is devoted to the piety of a Moabite woman and her fidelity to the Israelite, Naomi. In the genealogy at the start of Matthew's Gospel, Ruth is named as an ancestor of Jesus. So the line of Christ himself was traced through a minority ethnic woman. In the law of Moses, those of another ethnicity were entitled to be full 
and equal members of Israelite society if they kept its covenant and assimilated to its religious practices. So the boundaries of Israel were marked by belief, not ethnicity. In his purging of other ethnic groups at points in this story, Nehemiah took a sledgehammer to the issue, associating them with idolatry. Now there will have been overlap, but the openness of Israel's covenant meant that all could be its citizens. What matters is what people believe, not who their parents are. And in this way, I think, we are encouraged to see nationhood today as a civic rather than an ethnic question. In the UK, what matters ultimately are the values and the institutions we are loyal to, not our ethnicity. That we are struggling to agree these values and to identify these institutions shows how much we have fragmented as a country. There needs to be unity in our diversity. There are other sides to Nehemiah's reforms in chapter 13 which compel our attention and which feature nepotism, corruption, the role of social welfare and the protection of workers, each with strong modern resonance, even if they are expressed differently in the book of Nehemiah. The priest, Eliashib, gives to his relative, Tobiah, a grace and favor flat in the house of God, which should have been devoted to sacred goods. In characteristic fashion, Nehemiah throws the furniture out. When people assume public office, there are subtle temptations, not just to personal enrichment, but to the conferment of privileges on those they know, love, or owe something to. Corruption is usually rooted in these kinds of allegiances. We may think they are easy to identify and resist, but they are not, and the evidence shows it. Even where you might deny yourself in public office, it can be a lot harder to tell the relative or the friend you love who is in real need that you cannot indulge them because of the office that you own. Of all the problems in the world, corruption is probably the most endemic. And yet we spend so little of our intercessions on the moral probity of public officials. The second reform concerns the Levites, 
the priests whose service was supposed to be devoted to the Lord and whose needs, therefore, were expected to be met by the wider community so that they did not have to work on the land for a living but could be released to lead the people's worship. This provision was a kind of social welfare catering for people who did not have the facility to look after themselves, rather like a carer today who devotes all their time to the well-being of a dependent relative. Nehemiah was quick to identify this need, ensuring the Levites could return to their vocation and that the shape of social welfare showed something of the character of God as we would want it to today. The third reform was over the Sabbath. Of all the symbols of nationhood, the Sabbath was at the front of the queue, defining the people and their relationship to God. The people had slaved in Egypt to breaking point. They worked seven days a week without any respite. So the gift of one day of shared rest each week celebrated their freedom from endless attritional day after day work. And it also witnessed to the rest that God took at the culmination of his creation. To break that day by working was a sign of contempt for Israel's defining story of redemption. Nehemiah understood its significance and the need to keep the Sabbath. By contrast, today, we've taken the idea of Sabbath shattered it on the floor and trampled on its pieces. Anyone who makes a virtue of working seven days a week does not witness to the God of creation and redemption. So, Nehemiah was an activist who kept people on their toes. He was a reforming leader, rather than a transformational one, who took a literal reading of the law in an effort to restore lost purity. There's much to be said for reform, the need to respond to changed circumstances. But there's always the risk with reform that the changes are just structural and go only skin deep. Our faith is calling us to something deeper. In Romans 12, you know, it says we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. There may only be a few leaders who are born at the right time and with the right skills to make transformational changes in their world. But every Christian 
is called to transformational discipleship, where a whole way of being must be changed. If Nehemiah tells us anything, it's the value of not living the faith by halves. Let's pray. Lord, we want the world to be changed, and we know that change has to begin with us. And so we pray again for the gift and the grace of your Holy Spirit to transform our lives from within and to meet in us the cooperation with that work that you're looking for. And we pray for the leaders in our world, too, whom we love to satire and poke fun at, to criticize and disagree with, for that is our freedom. But we acknowledge also, Lord, the difficulty and the complexity of modern political office. And so we pray for the gift of wisdom for those who lead. And we pray especially for their moral probity, for the defense against corruption, that we may be governed in the character of God. Amen.